And I asked him what that meant. And he said, you're going to make a ton of decisions in any business. And you have to know that you are operating with your moral compass. You're operating with your set of values. And if someone goes back 10, 20, 30 years and says, hey, you made this decision, you say, yes, I did. And I use my moral compass to guide those decisions. Hey, and welcome back to the Arena Podcast by Coffin Fellows, where we dive deep into the stories of some of the most fabled VCs around the world. I'm your producer, Nihar Nilakanti, and your host is Jeff Herbach, CEO of Coffin Fellows. Today, we have the pleasure of inviting Anargya Verdana, partner at Mavron, to the show. We can't wait to share a story with you, so let's just jump in. We'll see you in the arena. Welcome to the Coffin Fellows podcast, The Arena. We're excited to have Anargya Verdana here with us today. Uh, Anargya, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. We're excited to have you and excited to jump into this conversation. First, I want to brag about you a little bit. So Anargya is a Coffin Fellow from Class 23. Uh, she is an Oregonian, a proud Stanford grad, a former Googler, uh, and an eternal entrepreneur, an investor, a marathoner, and a determined instigator of change, self-described from her own website. Uh, she has an incredible background. She's now a partner at Mavron. Her investor focus is in frontier tech. She's been in co- involved in companies like Booster Fuels, Inkbox, Pluto VR, The Guild, and many others. Um, what's fun for me is that we get to learn about uh, what her partners say about her. And, and argue, I want to embarrass you a little bit here. And- oh, God. <laughs> and share some of the things that, that Dan uh, Levitan has said about you. Um, so a quote about Anargia is Dan says that Anargia has great character, high integrity, intelligence, resourcefulness, and drive. Anargia possesses an innate sense of curiosity, which keeps her constantly processing new information. She seeks out learnings regarding other cultures, religions, and backgrounds in the most positive way. And her commitment to diversity, inclusion, and acceptance is exemplary. What do you think about that quote from Dan? Wow. <laughs> um, that is so kind of Dan. And I really appreciate that hearing that makes it feel like he really sees me. And that's really special. I don't think that everyone gets that in their job, in their work environment. And so I really cherish that he sees me and really appreciate the kind words. And all the more reason why I enjoy working with him and working under his leadership. Amazing. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. Well, we're going to get into that a little bit and and kind of your feelings around the cultures that you seek as you're, you know, looking for different roles that you have and now ultimately this role. But first, uh, Anargya, you know, in true kind of Coffin Fellows uh, fashion, we want to go back to the beginning. So tell us, tell us just a little bit about your your upbringing, your upbringing, kind of your uh, your family's background, um, and really what we're looking for: who were the influencers in your life? Your parents, others. Kind of talk to us a little bit about your background and your upbringing. Yeah, totally. So um, I'm from India. I'm from the state of Karnataka, which is a southwest state in India, and that's where Bangalore is. And most people know about Bangalore, especially in technology. But I'm from a smaller town, coastal town called Udupi. And that's where I was born. Uh, My mom is from that town. And back in those days, you would go back to your maternal house to be born. 
And I celebrated my first and second birthday in India before I moved to the U.S. And what brought us to the U.S. was my dad's career. My dad is a software engineer and has been a software engineer for 30 plus years. He started his career as a contractor with Intel Corporation and converted to a full-time employee and is still at Intel Corporation some 30 plus years later. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, incredibly loyal to the company and has done a lot of great work there. And he came to Oregon to, to join Intel and to work at Intel. And my mom and I came with him. And this was back in the early 90s that we moved to Oregon and, uh, you know, we're one of the first, I think, Indian immigrant families to move into, into Portland and into the suburbs of Portland, which was a pretty defining experience for, for both them and for me. One thing that I always joke about is my dad always says, you know, he's not an entrepreneur. He's not a big risk taker. He's been at the same job for 30 years. But I tell him, you left a country, you moved to an entirely yeah. new country, you started a community, you started a family. Uh, my parents were super pivotal in establishing things like the Hindu temple there, the first set of Indian restaurants, grocery stores. They, were, they played a big role in all these things and drawing business and building community there. So I always tell him, you are an entrepreneur, you are a risk taker, just maybe not in, in your court career. Clearly he was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we moved to Oregon. I grew up in Beaverton, which is a suburb of Portland. That's Nike town right outside Nike and grew up kind of, you know, immersed between these two different cultures. One was uh, the Catholic school culture, which is where I went to school my entire life and learned about Catholicism, religions in general, uh, really idea of being a man or woman for others and the idea of always giving back and contributing to, to society. And my schooling instilled that in me. And then my parents, of course, further instilled that and affirmed that in the household. So there was the school side. And then at home, my parents are what, what I describe as very Indian. Uh, you know, we spoke our mother tongue at home, which is called Kannada. And to this day, that's what we all speak to each other, me, my parents, my sister. We grew up going to a lot of Indian community events. I'm an Indian classical dancer and have been doing that my whole life. And now in Kaufman, as I'm identifying some of my zone of genius things, one thing I see is this ability to bridge many different cultures. And I didn't initially think of that as a superpower or as something that maybe others might not be able to do. It was just so natural to me. But now that I see myself doing that, in venture and in the tech communities I'm in and the different cultural communities I'm in, I do see that that is a strength of mine that allows me to both jump in all these different communities, but more importantly, connect them and, and tie them together. I can totally see that. And so with your parents, they were, they were really community builders. And as you say, your father really was, he had an entrepreneurial spirit. How did that drive you towards, you know, let's, let's go back to the 10 year old Anargia. Like what was the 10 year old Anargia <laughs> thinking that, that, that you wanted to do with your life based on what you learned from your parents? Oh yeah. So I have this chunk of me from my dad and I have this other chunk of me from my mom. And so my dad's family, they're all like hardcore mathematicians, scientists, engineers. And I grew up and my 10 year old self would tell you that I wanted to be the next Marie Curie. I wanted to be a hardcore research scientist, hopefully win a Nobel Prize, maybe even two. Amazing. And that was the dream for me. I saw myself in a lab coat and at the age of 10, or maybe even a little bit before that, I learned the concept of a PhD. And I learned that when you do a PhD, you're not just learning about a category, you're pushing that category forward. 
And the idea of pushing knowledge forward just like really stuck with me then. And so that's what my 10-year-old self would say about what I wanted to do specifically career-wise. And that's, that's my dad's side of me. My mom's side of me, which I think has continued to emerge more and more as I get older, is this community builder, this connector, this just hardworking hustle type of attitude. And I think that what she instilled in me then and still now is that you can do all these great things. You can kind of push the knowledge forward, push the world forward. But if that school of thought isn't impacting those around you, then then so what? And so the 10-year-old me would have wanted to hopefully push the field forward in something and hopefully have that thing help a lot of people. That's amazing. I love that. Gosh, your parents must be very proud with, uh, with where you've become, oh. what you've become and where you've gone today. You're now this very driven young lady. You, you get into Stanford. You go th- uh, through Stanford. What was your major at Stanford? It was an interdisciplinary major called Science, Technology, and Society. And you pick different areas of concentration. So I focused on computer science, math, and sociology. Did you did you even fail at anything going to Stanford? Going to Stanford, what what, how, what was your experience uh, at Stanford like? Yeah, so this is a really interesting experience because you're right. Like elementary school, high school, I was just like rising, 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 very uh, achievement focused, and I think reflecting. I think oftentimes a little too achievement focused and I wish I had been a little bit more learning focused, Um, but at the same time was able to explore a lot, learn a lot, accomplish a lot and get to Stanford. And Stanford was the first moment where I didn't feel like I was the best. And that was a pretty jarring experience, but I think a very important experience. And now my 30 year old self is incredibly grateful for that and humbled by that. You know, I get to Stanford, uh, 1,600 kids in my class. Everyone was the top of the top, the best of the best. I remember we'd have these funny dining room conversations being like, did you know what that kid got in for? And people would say these stories like, oh my gosh, they played in this amazing concerto in this amazing theater, or this kid won two Olympic medals. And you feel like, wow, why am I here? And what got me in? And that that feeling, I think, motivated me to really prove myself and motivated me to dig deeper into what does really make me special and what can I contribute to this community of 1600, but, but even bigger Stanford community. And to answer your question specifically in terms of failing or not failing, I my first quarter at Stanford... I overly ambitiously took like the hardest course load I could find because that's what I did in high school. I took AP this, AP that. So I take this really intense course load, which is filled with math and physics classes and just fumble all of it. Like I, I don't realize how things are graded on a curve. I get like 30, 40% on math midterms and I'm just losing my mind because I have this perception of myself and my perception of myself is someone who's just really, really good at academics. And for the first time that was challenged and I wasn't sure if I was intelligent enough or hardworking enough. And all these questions were, again, important realizations for me to have, but really forced me to think through my motivations for learning, my process for learning, and who I wanted to be in this learning environment moving forward. You know, that's, uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Certainly going through the experience that you went through and recognizing that maybe you weren't, uh, being the best didn't come easily to you uh, anymore. 
that can be motivating for some and yeah. very demotivating, demotivating for others. The fact that it was motivating for you says a lot about you and a lot about your drive. So, so thanks for sharing that. Thank okay. You. So now you, now you, you graduate Stanford and first job out of Stanford is Google. <laughs> so, he, so, yeah, so here you are, Indian born, Oregon raised, uh, you know, coming from a, an entrepreneurial family, really driven. You want to be uh, Madame Curie. And now here you are <laughs> working at what some would consider the pinnacle of all thought leadership in terms of technology. And, you know, what was that like walking in your first day at Google? Yeah, Google was amazing. I still remember the interview process. And one thing I said in the interview was, I can't imagine a better place to be that is intersecting technology and people. And I had that realization my senior year when I was working on this honors thesis around cell phones in the rural sector of developing countries and really seeing countries like India, Kenya, Tanzania leapfrogging the U.S. with mobile technology. They were using mobile payments back then in 2009, 2010, and we were still using cash and card here in the U.S. and still today are not on mobile payments that much and saw that technology really could not exist independent of people and ind independent of society and kind of had this idea for, you know, my, the two things in my head, one is technology, science, but the other equally important thing is people and doing things for people are intersected in a really beautiful way and will continue to be intersected and intertwined as technology permeates into more parts of society. And I said this in my Google interview because Google is literally at the definition of technology changing the way People find information, interact, learn. Uh, I still remember when I got my Google, Google job, I was in India with my late grandmother. And when I told her I got a job at Google, she goes, oh, that's amazing. That's the company that invented the internet. <laughs> and it kind of is. <laughs> so that really, that really stuck in my head. So it was, it was a great place to start my career, great place to learn. I worked with some amazing leaders there, uh, saw a lot of amazing women in leadership, which played a big role, I think, for me and was formative for me early on in my career. And I think learned principles of good project management, good product management, how to work in interdisciplinary teams and, and really think about, uh, you know, what are the things that you're putting forth and what are they, what are they doing for the bigger business and social world? Amazing. Thank you for sharing that, Anargis. So, all right. So now we have this young driven lady that's gone all the way through. We've, we've gotten to the point where we've described your, your first job coming out of Google. You've done a hunt, you know, a bunch more things that have been impressive. You've done startups, you've done, uh, you've been on board relationships, you've been in venture capital investing roles. Um, you are now one of the youngest partners at Mavron at, at the young age of 30. Um, anybody looking at this would say this person has been so successful in every aspect of her life. And this must have just been completely up and to the right in, in everything that you've done. Everything must have been easy. But we all know it's not, it's never like that. There's always ups and downs. Uh, I know that you've had them. I know some of them. Maybe what you could do is is share one um, one or two things that that weren't that didn't come so easy or they're very difficult for you to uh, to go through during this time uh, in your life. Yeah, um, I can talk about a couple different things, both work and personal. I left Google in 2013, so three years in, to try my hand in the startup world. And the first startup I joined had a lot of challenges. And I remember calling my dad a few weeks in, being like, this is so hard. 
And he was like, what's hard? Let's talk through it. Let's talk through the engineering problems. And I was like, no, no, no. It's not the engineering problems that's hard. It's the culture. It's the people stuff. It's the interactions. And that was something I had really undervalued, kind of being a junior person at a, in an organization like Google. Things were kind of set for me. And I just plugged in and participated and was able to just bring my optimism and my energy to that. But in the startup, I was actually the second most experienced person with just three years of work experience. And so I was playing a role in setting the tone, setting the culture. And we were dealing with a lot of cultural challenges, like deep distrust amongst the teammates, not understanding how quickly to scale, how to hire, how to establish new culture when you grow the team by a lot. And it was a time when... I was really questioning some of the actual underlying ethics and morals in the company and in how the company functioned. And you hear this conversation a lot now, especially with the Me Too movement coming to the forefront and and uh, companies requiring to be more transparent about diversity and things like that. And in 2013, that wasn't the case. And I had to look myself in the mirror and kind of think about, is this an organization that I want to be part of? Do I go home every day feeling proud about the work I do? How much can I really try to force and change it? And I tried doing that for a year, but it was uh, a head against a brick wall and, and things didn't end up changing. And another big thing I appreciated then was when you're going through these professional turmoils, I naively previously had thought, the professional challenges I will face in my life will always be very specific technical challenges. And they will be solvable by learning more or by reading a book or by talking to an expert. <laughs> I had grossly underestimated the people challenges and the emotional tax and toll that we all pay based on these people challenges. And the professional turmoil that I was facing, you know, took a toll on my personal life, my health. And when all of that came together, I was really able to see that wherever I work long-term, where I spend time, where I am right now, like Mavron, it is even more important than anything else to have that trust and that relationship with the people you work with. And now for me, that just trumps everything else is, is the people, do I trust them? Do they trust me? And do we have that relationship? I, you know, some of the things that you shared with me around this time were saying things like, you know, your, your belief in, in money and smarts and ideas were shattered by this, you know, the culture, emotional trust problem yes. and trust problems seemed insurmountable. Uh, and, and you even said that they, uh, they strained friendships and, and even your marriage. Um, that was, yeah. it was a difficult time. Yeah. And a hard lesson my husband and I learned because we both joined the startup together and we joined on the same day, him doing engineering, me doing product. And we will never work together again. We learned that going to getting up, going to work together, spending all day at work, coming home, talking about work. I mean, we, we both care so much about our work. It followed us everywhere. And when we were in it, we didn't realize why our relationship felt so strained. But when we were out of it, we were like, oh my gosh, we finally have this independence and space from each other. And most importantly, just have, you know, don't, don't have this challenging company that we're both trying to deal with every day. And, and yeah, you're absolutely right. Like these things will sneak into all these different parts of your life. Um, 
And I, I tell a lot of people, I learned a lot of what not to do, which I'm grateful I'm sure. for. Uh, you know, but one of the things I really love about this particular experience for you is, you know, you also told me this is one of the most devastating things you'd ever experienced. But then you said, what, what you know, and I was going to, I want to ask you, what did you learn from this? And one of the things that you said to me was, I learned that my morals are immovable and working in a morally and ethically sound work environment is paramount to my mental and intellectual health. Can you tell us kind of, you know, going through that, and I'm, I know there were others uh, experiences along the way to get you to where you are today. What have you learned from some of the the downs or the, the, the difficult times and how has that shaped the person you are today? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a really good question. I spent a week with my grandfather in India um, in late August, and my grandfather is over 80 years old. He has a private practice law firm, and he's been running that for, for a really long time. And I was asking him what his guiding principles are and his values are for business. And the first thing he said was to be unimpeachable. And I asked him what that meant. And he said, you're going to make a ton of decisions in any business. And you have to know that you are operating with your moral compass. You're operating with your set of values. And if someone goes back 10, 20, 30 years and says, hey, you made this decision, you say, yes, I did. And I use my moral compass to guide those decisions. And you are effectively unimpeachable. And he said, you're going to be reevaluating your morals or your values over time as, as things change, as you gather more information, but there's a core set of beliefs that you hold true that will be with you forever. And you should be proud of the decisions you make, especially when they're hard decisions, especially when they, when you look back and you say, wow, that was a tough call, but I made the right call with the information I had. And I'm proud of the call because of the values that guided me for that call. And that was really special to me because my grandfather has been in business forever and we've never talked about work stuff. It's always been personal stuff. And it's interesting to see how we psychologically know that we spend more time doing work than we do doing personal stuff. But it surprises me that many times folks are okay with a different set of values when it comes to work or to personal life. And for me, they all kind of mesh together. And as I think about working at somewhere like Mavron, working with leaders like Dan and other partners like Jason and David, I think about how, you know, we really talk about doing the right thing. And that's not always true in venture. And that's not always true in tech. And uh, I can't imagine working somewhere where every day I would feel compromised about, you know, are me or my partners doing the right thing? Oh, I, I love that. And I tell you what, you're your grandfather is a very wise man. Uh, that's, that's great yeah. advice that he gave you. Um, okay, so let's talk about that now. So now you walk into um, into Mavron with all this you know back history and all the kind of things that you're looking for in a role, and you meet Dan Levitan for the first time. Tell me what you're thinking when that happens. <laughs> um, I still remember meeting Dan for the first time at the Mavron office in San Francisco. And I remember him telling me that I was unusual because on my LinkedIn, I said that I like Indian classical dance and American football. <laughs> and I thought that summarized me quite well, actually. <laughs> um, Dan is the most open to growth, 
self-improving, hustling 61-year-old I know. He every day grinds. Yeah. And it is so inspiring to work with a leader like that because, you know, at at 61, as a successful investor who's had huge returns, he could chill. He could rest on his laurels and say, great, I've been there, done that, and I'm going to just watch from afar. But that is not Dan. And that's not my style either. So I love working with him. Every day he's he's up and he's excited and he's energized and he's there for all the teammates, there for the portfolio. And he often says like, He's never been more excited about about work and about his job and about his career and about the future. And so that is really inspiring. And I hope that when I'm 61, I can claim the same. Um, yeah. Amazing, amazing team. <laughs> and so now you're, as a partner at Mavron, you're focused on frontier tech. Tell us some of the things that get you excited. I mean, you've gone through this whole, uh, you know, all of your journey, all of your formative experiences to get you to this point. Uh, some time at Google maybe helped you think about some of these things. I don't know, but tell us what you're yeah. thinking about with Frontier Tech and what, what gets you excited. Yeah, I'm thinking about a couple of different things. So Mavron High Level is only a consumer venture capital firm. So we only invest in B2C companies, but consumer is super broad. So we'll invest in fintech, health tech, social apps, e-commerce, and more. And I spend a lot of time in the frontier tech side of things, which we kind of loosely define as what the next generation of consumer technologies can look like. And that could be anything from hardware to automation to AI to how consumers will perceive the American medical system in the future. It's a number of different things. And what gets me really excited about that is every generation of consumers has a different set of expectations around their technology. And if we think, if I think back to the internet and my first experience with the internet, it was dial up. And my expectation was that if my mom got a call and she picked up the phone, my internet would be disconnected. And that was just the expectation then. And as technology and infrastructure has evolved, you see that people have a different set of expectations. And based on those expectations, which now is perhaps around internet speed and internet accessibility in many different places, you begin to see another layer of applications and systems that are built on top of that. And one of the consumer expectations now that is super exciting is, is access to information and kind of an empowerment that people have, whether that is about their own health or uh, their finances or about the world around them. And I'm excited to see kind of companies that leverage that access to information, that leverage that empowerment and allow consumers to, to make these really informed decisions based on them. I, I think that's an exciting place to be, an exciting uh, way for you to engage uh, based on what your firm does. Uh, so that's that's awesome. Tell me, this is a, a little bit of a, a deeper question here, but where did you discover your spark? Like we've talked about your journey. We've talked about what you're doing now. You clearly have um, some drive that was given to you by your parents and your grandparents. Where do you find your spark? You know, what is it and where did you find it? And, and uh, maybe tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Um, I'll let you in on a little secret, uh, which is that I have never considered myself super smart. I always say that I'm hardworking. And that's something I've told myself, whether it's true or on some spectrum of truth or, or whatever. It's always something that I've kind of told myself internally, which is, hey, you know, you're, you're not a genius, but you are really hardworking. And for a really long time in my life, I thought that 
my work ethic or my willingness to push through hard things or my grittiness, which I guess is the new term that people use for it, was my defining strength or really what allowed me to be in these really amazing and privileged and blessed positions, whether that's Stanford or Google or or venture capital. Um, and as I dug into that, I realized that I drive a lot of my confidence out of my reliance on my hard work. So if I have to go after something really, really difficult, I don't say, great, I'm really smart. I can take this on. I instead say, I will put as many hours as I need to into this to figure it out. And that has been a really reassuring sentiment for me for a really long time. And I thought that that was perhaps my zone of genius when I was first introduced to the concept of zone of genius through the Kaufman program in my first module. As I dug deeper into that, I thought that there's always a possibility that maybe that's some kind of insecurity or some kind of untruth that I told myself for whatever reason. And I probably should dig a little bit more into that to, to further develop that. But through my interviews with my peers and through speaking with my coworkers and friends around me, I think my zone of genius has started to, to shape a little bit more. And it's more around uh, empathetic connection that I have with other people. And I think that that empathy comes from what I was saying a little bit earlier, which is bridging all these different gaps and cultures and interacting with many different kinds of people and being someone who can kind of step into these different roles and be okay and be comfortable and also connect in these different roles. And I was talking to my sister about this because I think she's quite similar in that, you know, we were two little brown kids growing up in in Beaverton, Oregon, and there were not a lot of people that looked like us. And the worlds in which we had to pass through, we were able to cultivate and learn the lingo of all these different worlds, but still feel really authentic to ourselves and present ourselves in a way where I was still an Argia, but I was in an Argia that was able to interact in these different worlds. And I, I think that that's kind of what my zone of genius is working towards, which helps me a lot in venture capital because you're interacting with all these different founders, and more specifically as a consumer investor, we invest in businesses that affect the lives of regular people and being able to empathize with those people, whether that's a mom in Nebraska or a kid in Atlanta or an elderly person in New York, being able to put myself in their shoes and think about what are the challenges they're facing when they're using this app or whatever has, has been really helpful and, and I hope will allow me to be great at this job. And Argy, anybody listening to this is going to say that is a very smart, very articulate, very driven uh, individual. There's got to be some things uh, that are weaknesses. Maybe what are one or two of your weaknesses that you've identified for yourself? And more importantly, how are you addressing them? How do you how do you think about them as, as weaknesses? Yeah. Um, I am easily stressed. And this job is quite demanding. And there's 10,000 things to do. And that stress can manifest itself in me thinking about five or six things when I should really focus and dive deep into one. And I've noticed that because I get my best work done when I'm able to focus on one problem, whether that's digging deep into one company or a particular problem within a company. But the stress, if it gets to me, I can't focus on that. And I'm thinking about all the 10,000 other things I have to do or think about. And I've used a number of different tools over time to, to help me in that, whether that's 
exercising or attempting to have some meditation practice or some calming practice. Um, for me, one of the biggest things has been to just like write it all down. What are the five or six things that are driving me nuts? And then have it written because writing it down helps me. And then I put it aside and the physical act of doing that helps me a lot. And separating that from from what I'm doing and then focusing on the on the thing I'm doing. Um, I think the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about, someone actually asked me this question on a panel, was a sense of like imposter syndrome or an insecurity that is that is tied to that. I mean, you've said some very kind words to me today just in this podcast about being smart and ambitious. And Dan had some really nice things to say that you started out with. And oftentimes that's hard for me to take in. And I think the imposter syndrome comes from a number of different things. One is is you know being different in a space that is not super diverse venture capital itself is not di- is not that diverse and you know you've heard the numbers of the number of women in venture the people of color in venture and similarly in my background work in in tech startups and stuff I've often been the only woman in the room and I heard someone speak and say that when you're super different from those around you, you have this cognitive overload where you're like, do I belong? Do I belong? Do I belong? And do I have to overcompensate to belong? And I think that that's something that kind of pricks at me uh, pretty regularly and I'm aware of it. And I think there are different ways to, to question it and to rely on things like my confidence and my work ethic or my peers who I, who I know and trust and know that they want me there for a reason. But I think my biggest duty, and again, maybe this speaks to how I think, is to, is to eliminate that feeling for the people who come after me, whether that's my younger sister or a number of other mentees and friends who are getting into the tech space. The more I can share with them and if I can tell them, like, you belong here, you are here for a reason, it's so important that your voice is heard, I feel like that itself will mitigate my own insecurity. Uh, you know, Im- imposter syndrome makes us all human. And the fact that you share that and argue is, is, is really great. And you're right. We need strong voices just like yours uh, so that the people that come, that are people that are here working now and the people that come after you can hear those strong voices and know that there is another way to do things. All right. A couple very quick uh, rapid fire questions for you, a little bit lighter. Uh, what are your favorite books? Ooh, um, uh, the Ministry of Utmost Happiness by Arundhati Roy, yeah. and Phil Knight's book Shoe Dog, Dog, which I love not just because I'm an Oregonian, <laughs> um, and I love anything by Zadie Smith. Great ones. How about uh, do you have any skills or talents that most people don't know about? I am really good at ordering for other people, like ordering food for other people. I can secretly <laughs> guess what they want. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and uh, finish the sentence. On Sunday mornings, you can usually find me. Going on a long run very slowly with my dog through Golden Gate Park. And argue for Donna, you've been an incredible guest on our podcast. You are not only super smart, but also hardworking. Uh, we are privileged to have you as a Coffin Fellow, and we're so proud of the work that you're doing and being that strong voice. We need more women in venture, women in business that are doing the things that you're doing. Thank you so much for inspiring those around you. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Nargit.
Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the Arena Podcast. As always, if you want to get notified of the latest release, you can subscribe to our newsletter in the link below. If you're interested in learning more about Coffin Fellows, you can visit us at www.fellows.org. That's all for now. See you next week. Thank you.